Spoiler alert, you're listening to the Comics Online podcast with a special podcast in honor of the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Up first on our 50th anniversary podcast special, we've got Jackson Lanzig, comic book creator of such books as Hacktivist and his new title, Joyride. All right, hello again and welcome to the Comics Online podcast. Uh, this is a special uh, episode that we're doing today. This is our Star Trek 50th anniversary special. And joining us today uh, for that Star Trek special is the writer of such comic books as Hacktivist, Batman and Robin, and his new project, which is available for pre-order at your local comic book shop, and that is entitled Joyride. Please welcome Jackson Lansing. Hey guys, how are you? Good. Uh, you're with uh, Good. you're with me, Mike, and then we've also got Ben, uh, who you uh, who you met. And I was we were just talking about this uh, before. Uh, it's kind of cool that you guys actually met at um, our favorite comic book shop uh, at Comics Online, and that's uh, Flashback Comics in Woodbridge. Yeah, it was a. It, it's where my uh, so my mom uh, lives in Woodbridge. I spent about six months there after uh, high school, and it's her local comic shop. So she uh, she was like, "Oh, you got to come pick up my pole with me," and uh, and so I, I I went over to pick up some books with her, and uh, they were having a conversation about Ben and uh, and uh, another gentleman were having a conversation about the the Netflix shows. Uh, since I live out here in Hollywood and I, I spend a lot of time tracking this stuff, I was like, oh, well, I can contribute to this conversation, and the rest was history. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, yeah, it's a great shop. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, and I'm not even just saying this because we work with them. It's, it's like my favorite comic book shop to go to. It's just, it's, Troy, Troy, the manager there, is just like one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met when it comes to comic books. I mean, where I live, I pass, I think it's about eight comic shops between my house and there just to get there. Yeah. So... Yeah, when you find a favorite, it's it's definitely worth going to. Now, I wanted to mention first, Jackson. Um, I was very impressed by your uh, your performance and your writing ability uh, for that uh, spoof song that you did, "My Spock." Since we're talking Star Trek today, um, so definitely kudos to you on that. That was uh, very enjoyable. I definitely appreciated that. That was pretty cool. Oh, thanks, man. That was a lot of fun. It was a weird. Uh, it, was, it was a spur of the moment thing. It's not something I do often uh, or really at all. Uh, but, uh, I was making a joke on Twitter with a friend of mine and, and had the idea and then basically just like went insane from there. Yeah. <laughs> so when it comes to, when it comes to Star Trek, um, Ben and I were talking about this the other day, everybody kind of has their, uh, you know, to use the parlance, their, their gateway drug, uh, into Star Trek. Mine sure. was the, uh, mine was the original motion pictures like, uh, Rathacon, uh, Search for Spock, like those, that's kind of what brought me into Star Trek. Uh, what was what was your first experience that really kind of hooked you into Star Trek? So um, Star Trek is actually the gateway drug to all pop culture for me. Um, I, okay. You know, we, we you, you talk about uh, I have a sort of parlance with my friends where we talk about sort of our like nerd our nerd root or yeah. our sort of like original nerddom. Uh, Star Trek was mine. Um, when I was a pretty young kid, my parents, uh, my, my mom and my stepdad would would watch it. Uh, and normally I would have to go to bed uh, before it was when Next Generation was on. I'm a pretty young guy. And uh, I, I would have to go to bed before it came on. Uh, and so uh, I would never get to watch it. And then one day they, uh, I was, a friend of mine was sleeping over and uh, they let us stay up and watch Star Trek with them. Uh, and they watch, it was, uh, it was Best of Both Worlds Part oh, 1. Oh, dude. That's oh. like the best one to start on too. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, so, wow. the, so my first experience with Star Trek is that Borg Cube and like my little brain going like, oh my God, spaceships don't have to look like spaceships. Like the, the idea that something could be non-aerodynamic and still work in space. Um, like I, rem- I, I, I remember like, like it's like, it's like a bullet in my brain. Like I will, I will never lose that giant hole that that made where it was just like, oh yeah, this is, 
this is new, like this is something else. Uh, and I, and then by the end of it, you have, you know, Lacutus and, and yeah. uh, that question of whether Riker was going to take over the ship. And I was like, I'm hooked. Uh, so, so next generation was what hooked me on it. Uh, but DS nine is what kept me. DS nine is my, if, if, if you ask me my favorite Star Trek, the Star Trek that like made me, uh, a forever Star Trek fan, the guy yeah. who will defend Star Trek till the day I die and write stupid spoof songs. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I run a, I run a role-playing game. I run like a tabletop role-playing game that takes place in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Like, I'm, All right, guys, we had a minor uh, technical malfunction there. Jackson accidentally engaged his cloaking device, and when he did so, it knocked out his communications array. So we lost Jackson for a couple of minutes there, but we were able to get him back. Uh, luckily, we have a fully functioning transporter system here. We were able to beam Jackson over, finish up our interview, and talk a little bit about Star Trek. Uh, Mr. Scott, go ahead and engage those transporters. Hey, you were talking about how much you liked the uh, the scene with Troy and Zephram Cochran and Riker where she's getting drunk. Yeah, I yeah. just think it like it turned it. Every single character has a great beat in that movie. Barkley yeah. has a great beat in that movie. Of all people, like yeah. it takes the onus of of uh, bigotry from Kirk and uh, you know like Kirk has in Undiscovered Country and it applies it yeah. to Picard, gives him that trauma uh, that he can't see his way past. Uh, and as a re- result, he needs to have the, those beats with Lily, where Lily convinces him that he. Uh, uh, you know, is looking at this like Ahab and not looking at this like Picard. I, I think it's a it's a very evolved movie and a really great story and I, one that doesn't get uh, nearly as much respect because it tends to get maligned as the Star Trek action movie. You know, yeah, uh, but it has a it has a lot of heart to it and there's a lot of a lot more to that movie than an action movie. I totally agree with you. And um, kind of to go back to the original movies uh, and you were talking about that, the one thing I really loved about Nick Meyer that he did with two and with six is especially with two because it was the first time you had seen it it was the first time that they made kirk fallible because he had pretty much just been the badass cock of the walk guns blazing shoot first ask questions later captain you know he gets every woman and there was never any consequence for that and in two you saw that he had a kid and not only that his kid was grown up all the way and he had a pretty shitty relationship with him and like you said, it was ballsy for them to do that. And I totally agree. I mean, like to, to take a character like that, that's so embedded in our culture and basically say, Hey, look, he did some pretty fucked up things. Yeah. Well, and there's a thing, there's a thing that uh, John Logan uh, talked about when he was writing on John Logan or John Ridley. Shoot. Uh, who wrote Star Trek nemesis? Uh, let's take a look. I'll see who's yeah. John Logan. So Logan? Okay. Um, there's a, uh, when John Logan was writing, uh, uh, Star Trek Nemesis, um, he did an interview where he talked about the idea that he, his, he thought that one of the great evolutions in Star Trek was that, uh, was that in, was that idea of giving Kirk glasses in Wrath of Khan yeah. to show that he's gotten older, um, yeah. just to give him that little edge of the world is moving on and Kirk is still there, you know? Um, and uh, I think, the idea that, like, they introduced that in Wrath of Khan, and they introduced that he's not a particularly great father, and that he doesn't have the relationship with with uh, this woman that he wishes he had, and that, like, he has failed and he has messed up. Uh, and then bringing that full circle in Undiscovered Country to say, okay, and and he's blamed everyone except for himself. Yeah. You know, so that eventually when he finally can come to terms with that, when he comes to grips with it and can instead start paying that forward and start making mature, mature decisions, like the movies end up actually taking Kirk on an arc. You know, they take him on a journey. 
uh, over the course of those six movies. Um, so five notwithstanding, because I think five ends up kind of aggrandizing Kirk. Uh, a way that, that and I think that's the reason people tend to, to butt up against five is that it it doesn't actually feel like it's of a piece with one one uh, with uh, with two three and four and six five no. is kind of this like detour where Kirk has to become a lot more badass and boss uh, and you know I mean he fights God right like as yeah. opposed to as opposed to this idea of like oh this is a character who actually has some serious uh, hangups and a journey to continue on. Yeah, and you got to think about that too. Like, how do they describe that movie in, in TV Guide? Kirk and crew fight God. Like, it's just, it's, yeah, it, it's a hard, it's a hard sell right there. I mean, it's he had some grand plans for it. I mean, the the, the concept of it is very high level, but at the same time, that's very hard to execute. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Now, with um, with all this being said, with it being fifty years of Trek, what what do you hope to see? in the future from Star Trek? So here's my, this isn't necessarily a popular opinion. I've actually been having this argument with a lot of my very close Star Trek friends who know how much I care about this stuff, Okay. Uh, how much I care about the continuity and the characters and all this. Um, I would be very interested in a Star Trek uh, that if, if, if they're going to do a new, you know, they're going to do this new series. I'm very interested in a Star Trek that uh, takes uh, two tacks and kind of does them together. The first is to to constantly be focusing on the new. So I, I hope that the next iteration of Star Trek doesn't concern itself with Ferengi and Vulcans and Romulans and Klingons and the Dominion and any of that. I genuinely hope that the new Star Trek introduces new alien races, introduces new concepts, introduces new worlds, new civilizations. Um, I wouldn't be totally against a world where the new Star Trek has very little to do with the old Star Trek, except that it has the words Federation and Enterprise in it, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I, I would be perfectly happy with them leaving behind not just their old continuity, but their new continuity, and establishing something that is brand new, that is fresh, that is unique, and that is built on new concepts. Um, I don't think you need Klingons for Star Trek to be Star Trek. No. I just think you need it to um, to live under that concept of Idic. Uh, and that goes back to the second thing that I think should go hand in hand with that, which is I, I would really uh, desperately want a, um, a push towards uh, the kind of diversity and diverse thinking that you saw on the original series, uh, on all the original series, uh, applied to the modern TV landscape. Um, I, I think it was very daring and very bold to have a female captain when you had it. Now to have a African-American captain when you had it, or, you know, he's not American, he's a Federation. You have a black captain when you had it. Uh, you know, to have a... Um, I think it was very daring to have a robotic crew member. I think it was daring to have a... Uh, uh, to have a shapeshifter. I think it was daring to take these characters and do interesting, like to, to, to take them in new directions and to, yeah. to, to think outside of the box of like, okay, well, here are our standard cookie cutter castings that we could make. So I hope you have characters in this series, in this next series that, uh, to for whom gender is not a binary concept. I hope you have characters on this new series for whom organic life doesn't mean what it means to us. Uh, I would love to see a character that is a that is a plant and 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 acts like that and and, and is fundamental like that. Not like on yeah. not like brute, where it's like kind of a cartoon thing. But like, let's really get into like what it would be like to be a completely different kind of life form. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope we start to see that kind of thing. I hope we start to see. Uh, I remember uh, Jeff Thorne did a, 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 he's a really excellent writer, um, works on the librarians and does his own novels. He did a really great uh, Star Trek pitch that's kind of out there. You can find it called Star Trek Federation uh, back in the day. Uh, and it never went. 
the Star Trek Federation uh, was sort of built on the idea that it took place uh, many hundreds of years in the future of like DS9 when the Federation is starting to kind of collapse and uh, it's a new ship. And uh, I remember on that crew, there was a character, uh, I think it's called 13th Distillation of Blue and 13th Distillation of Blue was their engineer. And it was a, it was a sentient gas cloud that <laughs> was a distillation of like this particular colored blue gas. Uh, and it, it, and that was their engineer. And it's like, that's what I want. I want some weird new stuff that, that you can look at and go, well, Star Trek has made me rethink what uh, life means, what gender means, what sex means, what violence means. I hope yeah, yeah. Star Trek can get down to the core root stuff that Star Trek was so good at getting down um, at the beginning so as to use alien concepts to then double back and show us our human condition because oh, yeah. that is ultimately what Star Trek's greatest, uh, to me, asset is, is putting up a mirror to our world and saying, hey, guys, we could be better. We could be more. We can aspire, not just from a technological level, although obviously that's um, a, a very big one as well, but from a uh, from a biological level. Uh, and that's all something I'm very interested in. So I, 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 and it seems like something that Brian Fuller is interested in. He keeps using Idic, uh in his like press releases and interviews. So yeah. I, I genuinely hope that we see a, a Star Trek series that is defined by uh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. All right. All right. Now, now, kind of a fun question here to, to kind of end up the, the tie up the interview here. Sure. Of all of the technology that you've seen in Star Trek, mm-hmm. of all the things that have, I mean, some things that are even now showing up in modern day, like for instance, they just announced uh, that transparent aluminum is something that they can actually do. Yeah. And it's not just something from Star Trek four where they tell that guy about it in the, uh, the lab in San Francisco. I know um, it's nuts. If there was one thing that you could have Star Trek, Star Trek technology, like with you right now that you were access that it was accessible to you, what would it be? Transporter. Oh, absolutely. Without, yeah. Without a doubt. So you're not going to be of the, of the bones, uh, sect where you don't like your, um, matter being scattered all over the universe and then reassembled somewhere else. Uh, no. Uh, and that's because I've had a lot of arguments with a lot of people about exactly how transporters work. I know the ins and outs of the technology and I know that bones is, uh, a worry work when it comes to that kind of thing. As long as the transporter, as long as you can rely on that computer, it is your matter. I, 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 I reject fully this idea that every time you get into a transporter, you die and a new one of you is being cloned and put out there in the world. Right. That's yes. not, what it is. It is a matter stream. It's just taking you apart and putting you back together. It's not scattering you across the universe. It's just <laughs> putting you in a beam. It's super simple. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I, and, and, and just given that one of my great passions in, in life is travel uh, and one of my great deficits in life is money, uh, it would be really nice to be able to travel anywhere without having to worry about uh, uh, paying for air flights. Absolutely. So they're, they're, we're not going to have to worry about a regular version of Jackson Lansing and then one with a goatee <laughs> that's evil roaming around well, the world, are we? Look, you never know when the mirror universe is going to strike. Let me just say, <laughs> you never know. So just watch out. There is a version of me with a goatee somewhere. He he, he, he shaved that goatee off in high school. Uh, hopefully he never returns. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, again, thanks for tuning in. This was uh, Jackson Lansing. Just one more time, Jackson. Uh, we'll kind of close this out here. Uh, tell us about your new your new project here, uh, Joyride. You said it was a, a punk rock teenage Star Trek book. Yep, uh, that is essentially how we pitch it. Uh, Joyride is uh, a book that I'm writing with my co-writer um, on, on all things comics uh, and movies, uh, Colin Kelly. 
uh, and our artist from our previous book, Hacktivist, uh, Marcus Toe. It's our creator-owned book at Boom Studios. It's about three kids uh, in a future Earth that is uh, in many ways a utopia, uh, unless you think differently than the government does, in which case it is a total disaster. Uh, and this, uh, these three kids who think a little bit differently uh, decide to get off of the uh, get off the planet, uh, which is fully illegal. We're never allowed to go to space. In fact, we built a giant shell around the planet to make sure we can't. Wow. Uh, they get it. They get outside of the spaceship or get outside of the, uh, the safe sky, which is what we call that big shell. Uh, they lure an alien spaceship and they hitch a ride into space. Uh, and the story is about them every week uh, hitting a new planet or going to a new place uh, and encountering the crazy outside uh, context weirdness and diversity that you can encounter out in the universe. Uh, it's a book that's pretty much appropriate for all ages, but it has a little bit of edge. Uh, we, we tend to liken it to like, if you're, if you're a comics fan, uh, if you grew up on Lumberjanes and you're ready for something a little bit more adult, Joyride is there for you. Uh, if you love The Wicked and the Divine, but you're like, want something that's not going to depress you quite so much, like you can read Wicked and then like decide you want to read something else afterwards, Joyride is going to be, I think, a really good companion piece. Um, if you are, if you were a fan of like Ryan Ferrier's stuff, like Kennel, uh, uh, Kennel Block Blues right now, which is awesome, or, um, uh, or, or uh, Dave or Curb Stomp. Uh, I think this fits into a lot of the same kind of punk rock, uh, uh, at least writing aesthetic. If you're a fan of anime, Marcus Toe is just like, he's basically the greatest American, or not American, but like West, because he's Canadian, but like Western manga artist there is, but his stuff fits a, a sort of Western American uh, feel, less so a manga feel. So he, he really hits that um, that dual ground. Uh, it's going to be a great book. We're incredibly excited. Uh, yeah, right now it's like four it. issues, but we need sales. So if we get a lot of sales on number one, we can take this thing ongoing, and that's what we want. We, we, we have many, many, many issues of this thing plotted out. We have long-term goals for it, uh, but we're only going to be able to do it if you go out there and pick it up. So please, if you're listening to this, go to your local comic book store. Tell them that you're excited about Joyride. Uh, it's coming out on April uh, 20th. It's coming out on 420. Uh, we're really, really excited. So please go out there and support it, especially if you like Star Trek. I pretty much promise this book will be up your alley. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, so definitely go out there, guys. Pick up uh, a copy. Um, or pre-order it, too, so that your local shop has got it. But again, this was Jackson Lansing. Jackson, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. All right, guys, so that was Jackson Lansing joining us on our special 50th anniversary of Star Trek uh, podcast that we've got here on Comics Online. Uh, thanks again to Jackson for joining us. We certainly appreciate it, uh, squeezing us in his busy schedule that he has. Remember, pick up a copy of Joyride. That is his new comic book that is coming out April the 20th. You can always pre-order it at your local comic book shop. If you're in the Northern Virginia area, stop by our favorite comic book shop and Jackson's favorite comic book shop, and that is Flashback Comics in Woodbridge, Virginia. Next up on this anniversary Star Trek podcast, we've got Ulysses Campbell. He is host of the television show Fantastic Forum, which talks all things geek pop culture, just like us here at Comics Online. So here, without further delay, is Yuli talking some Star Trek. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Are you actually wearing Star Trek garb as well? Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> I decided to get into the spirit of the thing. And you know, if you're going to be on this thing, you know, the, the whole video communication this yeah. is the way you're supposed to be dressed i got yeah absolutely now i mean unfortunately this is going to be an audio podcast but ladies and gentlemen let me let you know that ulysses campbell went <laughs> all in he is wearing the gold 
uh, James T. Kirk inspired uh, Star Trek shirt right now, and I'm I'm impressed. I gotta say, like you you went all in, and I appreciate. And he's got the Federation <laughs> mug too. Like it's fantastic, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, uh, Yuli. We really Thank appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's a rare pleasure and honor. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know you're a huge Star Trek fan, and that's that's why we're here today. We're talking about the the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. I mean, it's it makes me feel old to think that something that <laughs> that I've been loving since I was a little kid is, is going to be 50 here soon. Um, but just. just there's such a difference between this and Star, Star Wars, I feel. I feel like there's always that comparison made. I feel like they're both great. They're both great equally in their own right. But there's something about Star Trek. I've always felt like Star Trek has a certain hope to it, a certain connection that anybody who's... I mean, we're all from Earth, obviously. But it's humanity coming together to make something great, to do great things. I mean, as they've mentioned before, economics is no longer a thing. War, other than you know, with the Klingons and the Romulans and the Borg... Mm-hmm. Is no longer a thing on planet Earth. Everybody is united for one goal, and it's it's just such a fantastic thing to think of. I mean, that's what it kind of means to me. What about you? What does it mean to you? Well, um, first, let me just say, uh, we, you can see, well, of course, the listeners can't see the gray in my beard, but I'm an <laughs> old guy, too. And, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, a remarkable thing that uh, a television show, especially from that era, has uh, continued to remain relevant to this day. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just let you know how old I am. <laughs> it, it, because it, back in the day, we didn't compare Star Trek to Star Wars. There was it no was Star, Tre- Star, Star Wars. Tre- oh, no, no, that's right. It was Star Trek and Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the comparison that was made. So it's, it's kind of funny for me to hear these uh, Star Wars comparisons. And, and you're right. I mean, I, in fact, obviously, uh, Star Wars... Um, I, I, I don't really want to compare the two. And as you said, they're, they're not really comparable because Star Wars is its own animal. Yeah. Uh, I think that the only reason the comparisons are made is because of the relative popularity of both. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I mean, Star Trek is Star Trek is science fiction is the key distinction, I think. Star Wars, I, I, I love it, but it's fantasy. Uh, yeah. One of the things that uh, I was amused by uh, as recently as yesterday uh, Gene Roddenberry was an incredible visionary, and he had this—he had this vision for the future, and he knew exactly how he wanted to present this. Now, one of the things that was particularly important to Mr. Roddenberry was that all of the science in Star Trek, at least related to the Federation, um, be based in actual theory, and so. I just learned, and apparently this has been around for a couple of years now, but I just learned that transparent aluminum. Yes, I saw that on your Facebook feed. That was so cool. I got so excited about that. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and this was theorized back in the 1960s, and it was actually developed. But uh, Star Trek had uh, scientific advisors who would review every script, and they would advise the writers on what was credible and what wasn't. And so they were able to incorporate actual science into the show. And that was one of the reasons that it was as embraced as it was by uh, the scientific community at the time, because NASA engineers loved this show. Yeah. They absolutely loved it. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that it has remained uh, as popular and credible as it has over the years. Part of me wonders if the reason why we're hearing now that transparent aluminum is something that is 
tangible is if it's not because uh, Scotty and McCoy went to that fabricating plant in San Francisco <laughs> to show them the formula for transparent the aluminum. Formula. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, you know, the, the movies are, the, are their own thing. Yeah. And um, I don't even want to, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that there because okay. uh, as much as J.J. Abrams has, well, I'm not really leaving it there because I'm, I'm continuing to talk. Go, go but as right much ahead. as J.J. Yeah. Abrams has breathed new life into this franchise, um, what he has presented, and I, I got to say, I'm going to preface my remarks by saying that it's absolutely masterful what he did in terms of creating this alternate reality mm-hmm. from which to tell his stories. Because the uh, original series timeline is intact somewhere. And, and that's an important distinction because what Abrams has created, in my view, isn't really Star Trek. Um, yeah. It's sort of fast and the furious in outer space. And that's, a, that's a really good distinction, yeah. Yeah. Well, because Star Trek, as you said, it's, it's, it's all about hope. And Star Trek, I, I, I think in order to really understand what it is uh, and to appreciate it, we have to look at it from the framework uh, under which it was created. Now, this was mid-1960s U.S. television. Mm-hmm. And what you had were Western shows and police dramas, and game shows, and comedies, and doctor shows, and lawyer shows, and there was no real longevity to, I mean, well, Gunsmoke had been on for X number of years at the time, but um, uh, uh, it it was all largely uh, white males, Uh, you know, the females were in these subservient roles, you know, wearing aprons, and being in the kitchen, or, you know, sewing up the kids, you know, socks, or whatever. Yeah, typical June uh, Cleaver kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and uh, here comes this thing, uh, where you had women in positions of authority, you had people of all ethnicities, Asians and African Americans, and you know, with the Cold War tensions of the time, you even had a Russian on this ship, and and, and an alien was the second in command. Yeah. And these people respected each other; they worked together, and they excelled. Um, also, the whole notion of what they were doing out there, because uh, you know, with very few exceptions, until that point, the way that. Uh, space travel had been presented on television and in movies, it was a shoot 'em up. You know, Monster of the Week, and oh, are these things are trying to conquer Earth or whatever. Um, you know, this was a ship of explorers. In fact, uh, the whole notion of a federation of planets was unheard of. I mean, you had all these different races throughout the stars who were working together uh, to explore and to. Uh, expand commerce and the understanding of, uh, of of experience, and even the way that the various alien life forms were presented. One of uh, my favorite episodes, and this was important to Roddenberry in terms of again the presentation, mm-hmm. uh, an episode called "Devil in the Dark" from season one, where there's a mining colony where uh, that is being terrorized by a rampaging monster. And uh, you come to find out during the course of the episode that this actually is a mother creature trying to protect her young. And so, uh, you know, the perspective of what this was from the beginning to the end is completely different. Another one episode called Arena uh, that was based on a a Robert Block story. And um, uh, Kirk is uh, one of many people's favorite. Kirk is fighting the Gorn, giant lizard. 
monster. Anyway, uh, so but but the hook with that one, uh, the Gorn had destroyed a uh, outpost of the Federation, mm -hmm. slaughtered everybody, and Kirk is oh he's pissed, he's hot, he's oh it's an invasion, we've got to destroy the aliens, and then come to find out that the Gorn were acting. Uh, they felt to protect themselves. Uh, an outpost had been established in their territory, and they saw the Federation as the invaders. You know, so um, a lot of the time, and uh, it's funny because I'm going to reference Star Wars here. But uh, Obi Wan Kenobi talking to Luke, he says, "Luke, a lot of the time, the truths we cling to depend on your point of view." Yeah. And that was one of the things that I thought that Star Trek was wonderful with was um, presenting something, or at least giving you some. Uh, some facts and you, the initial conclusions that you draw may not be the conclusions that you take away when you are in command of all the facts and so your perspective changes based on what you are introduced to now based on that i mean you've you've shown your love for the original series is is that when when you think Star Trek is that the end all be all like the original series or did you are you a fan of the next generation or the subsequent kind of offshoots like Voyager or Enterprise did you get into any of those shows or were you just original series Oh I I love uh I mean I love Star Trek I mean you know quiet as it's kept I mean it's not as if I haven't seen the JJ Abrams movies <laughs> <laughs> Yeah so, you know it is what it is um and in fact um, I'll tell you a funny story because, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, yeah, well, you can see the way I'm dressed. I mean, <laughs> I've been a Star Trek geek for many, many years. Yeah. And um, so much of, in fact, so much of my philosophy, well, you know, I, that that I wasn't given by my parents, I either got from some comic book or from Star Trek, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So, um, but 1987. And I was hanging out with a bunch of friends, mundane friends. I mean, you, of course, in the geek community, anybody who's not, you know, a fan, you know, we <laughs> call them mundane. So hanging out with a bunch of mundane friends. And, you know, it was one Saturday night or something. We're getting ready to hang out. And um, somebody was flipping the uh, TV channels. And, hey, what pops up but the first episode of Next Generation, Encounter at Farpoint. And uh, we, somebody recognized it. And it's like, wait a minute. Is this that new Star Trek? And I was like, well, hold on, fellas, hold on. So we all sat down. It was a two-hour one, and shockingly, all yeah. of these guys watched it. But um, I, I, I knew it was Star Trek-esque. I mean, you saw the uniforms, and in fact, they were designed by uh, Bill Tice, who uh, designed the uniforms for the original series. Uh, the equipment seemed familiar. Of course, the design of the ship, very much like the beautiful design that Matt Jeffries did for the original Star Trek. Uh, classic combination of the saucer and rocket shapes to create something new. But anyway, long and short of it, it wasn't until uh, at the end of the first hour where uh, Commander Data was using a shuttlecraft to transport an admiral back to uh, the USS Hood. And you find out that this admiral who's been over all day reviewing medical layout is none other than uh, DeForest Kelly reprising his role as Dr. Leonard McCoy. So, and he's 137 years old, this yeah. old guy, you know, like tottering down the halls of the ship. And uh, the little exchange that McCoy and Data had, I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my God, it, it's really Star Trek. It, it's really Star Trek. Oh, you know, and... So um, part of the reason that I embraced the new series, it was an extension of what Roddenberry had created. And 
in fact, subject to some criticism, because there were a lot of people every time Picard intoned, we've evolved beyond that. You know, it was like, oh, really? Uh, we've evolved? Okay. And it took them a little while to find their sea it legs. Did, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think until real. I mean, I loved it from day one, but yeah. it wasn't until season three, I think, that they really hit their stride. But uh, no, I love that one. I love Deep Space Nine and Voyager, uh, Enterprise. In fact, I think um, of all of them, shockingly, Voyager is the one that is closest to Roddenberry's original conception. I agree. For what yeah. Supposed to be. Yeah. You know, you have yeah. a female in a command role. You know, here's uh, you know essentially. Uh, a grunt ship, you know, because the, the thing with Next Generation, this was the flagship of Starfleet, the Federation, you know, but Voyager, hey, you know, it's just, you know, every ship and uh, set far enough away that they couldn't be in regular command with, uh, sorry, regular contact with their command base. And so they had to figure out a lot of stuff on their own. And uh, I thought it was interesting because just as an aside, uh, when the first pilot of Star Trek was made, the cage, starring Jeffrey Hunter uh, with Majel Barrett as number one uh, as the first officer of the ship. Apparently test audiences, and it was largely women, rejected the number one character. Really? Uh, you know, at the time it was just too revolutionary to have a woman in this authority role. And uh, my understanding is, you know, these women are looking at this and they're like, well, who does she think she is? <laughs> you know? I thought that was funny, but of course by the time yeah. Um, you know, this Voyager rolled around. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were advanced enough to accept uh, a woman as the captain. Yeah. And uh, I thought that she did a fabulous job. And I, I always said, um, looking back, I, I felt that um, the the character that Kate Mulgrew sort of channeled um, was. Uh, you, you ever see uh, uh, the African Queen? Yes. Humphrey Bart and yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, all right. Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, it wasn't Lauren Bacall. It was, uh, and I, I was, I was cheating a little bit. I was hoping you were going to feed me the. Um, it was. Um, oh, this is terrible. A very famous actress, but anyway, she was channeling her, and that was it. it it'll come to me. Um, in fact, somebody needs to really quickly uh, look this that's name. What up. That's what I'm doing right now. That would be Humphrey Bogart, yeah. Catherine Hepburn. I'm sorry. Yes, Hepburn. Yes, yes. Catherine Hepburn. Yes. Yeah. So there was a very Catherine Hepburn-esque kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, even down to the way that Janeway's hair was styled. Initially. That's true. Yeah. You know, I never knew that. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, I got to say, it's really cool to, to, to talk to somebody because we, we're of different generations. Um, mm -hmm. For me, Star Trek was introduced to me by my dad and by my aunt. They were both big fans. So I got raised on the original series, but when Next Generation was on, I was a kid, so I got to pick it up. That That's kind of mine, but really, from my parents and from my aunt, I really, my Star Trek is, is the, the series, the, the movies, like mm. Rathacon, mm -hmm. uh, Search for Spock, all of those. That's where I fell in love with Star Trek, so that Enterprise is like, is like my favorite, but it's so cool to see it from a different perspective, from somebody who's watched it from the beginning and all the way through. <laughs> Well, and who loves it just as much. Well, not like I, I was. A, I mean, truthfully, I'm yeah. sort of second generation fan. Yeah, okay. Because uh, I, I'm just, I'm just slightly older than Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> but you know, it's it having its 50th anniversary. I'm not saying you're like in your uh, 70s or 80s here. I'm just saying, uh, like, uh, no, I, I, I okay. will be. I, I don't mind admitting it. I yeah. will be turning 53 this year. Okay, <laughs> so see, uh, that we're but, we're exactly 20 years apart. I'm 33. So it's uh, there you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the next generation would have been your thing. No, yeah. um, my 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 sister because my sister's a little bit older than I am. Yeah. So it, that, that was sort of her generation. 
generation that grew yeah. up. I mean, really, because um, she had already come of age by the time Star Trek came on. Yeah. I mean, I sort of discovered the show. I mean, I was aware of it, like uh, season three. Even though it came on kind of late, uh, I was kind of able to hang up and, you know, I, I, I knew what it was. And, of course, everybody had the, uh, the, the models and all that stuff. In fact, Star Trek yeah. was another way that it was distinct from a lot of other television. It was a marketing juggernaut. Uh, everything, in fact, uh, the Klingon cruiser, the reason that they had a Klingon ship in season three was because sales of the Enterprise model by AMT had been so robust. AMT approached uh, Gene Roddenberry. They said, hey, we'd, we'd like to do another model. Can you guys do another ship? But the budget didn't allow for the um, Star Trek show to, to do another ship. So uh, Roddenberry worked out with AMT that um, Jeffries would design this ship. AMT would pay for the model to be built for use on the show. And then they'd have another model to sell. You know? That's crazy. So, yeah, and it worked out great. Yeah. You know? And even though Star Trek at the time was one of the most expensive series on television, and uh, one of the lies that is told about the show is that, oh, the ratings were never especially good. Um, there is a, there's a wonderful book actually a series of books that sort of debunks that. And I would uh, recommend to anybody who's a fan of the show, they're called These Are the Voyages. And um, absolutely fabulous series of books. Um, you know, that because uh, the original production records apparently are uh, kept at the UCLA library. And so, um, you know, the author researched and, and he'd conducted interviews mm -hmm. with a lot of the original cast members, guest stars, production people over a period of about 30 years. So by the time these books came out, a lot of people were dead who were connected with the production of the show. But he had talked to them anyway, and their uh, reflections were included in this book. Absolutely fabulous book uh, that talks about uh, leading up to the production of the show production of individual episodes down to the casting and uh, all various minute details. But he includes the original ratings records as he could find them, uh, you know, from uh, uh, the A.C. Nielsen company. And Star Trek consistently, um, it, well, it generally came in second in its time slot. Sometimes it won, but it was a very uh, well-rated show. And um, it, the, the problem was Roddenberry himself wasn't especially warm and fuzzy uh, with the network or the studio. And um, there were a lot of shows whose ratings weren't nearly as good that were never threatened the way Star Trek was. In fact, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with the fact that between season two and three, uh, Star Trek was getting ready to be canceled. And in fact, the network had announced that uh, after season two, it was no longer going to be on the NBC schedule. And a woman named B. Joe Tremble and her husband organized a letter writing campaign and uh, over a million individual pieces of mail flooded into the NBC studios in New York and um, that letter writing campaign is credited with having saved the show and uh, so there was a third season and it was just unfortunate the way things unfolded because uh, of course, that third season was Star Trek's last and yeah, there was no yeah. amount of uh, letter writing <laughs> that was going to be able to save it when the powers that be decided to kill it. Although, um, as we have seen, essentially, they killed the goose that laid the golden eggs because yeah. uh, I don't know that Paramount has ever had a property that is as well-regarded or as profitable as the Star Trek franchise ultimately turned out to be for them. 
Well, and what's really cool, too, is seeing what's happening in current media. Like, for instance, with Deadpool. Deadpool essentially was the same mm. thing, where fan the fan reaction is what brought it to the silver screen. But Star Trek fans have always been like that. And they're kind of like the first fan base that, that really had that kind of power. I mean, think about when they when they and uh, when NASA introduced the uh the shuttle, the space shuttle. I mean, <laughs> I, a letter campaign single-handedly named one of the shuttles Enterprise. That's incredibly impressive. Um we've got a couple more minutes here. Uh Yuli, I wanted to ask you if if you had to rank them. I, I, you've already given me a couple of your favorite uh episodes from the original series. Um maybe two or three of the movies that came out. What are what are your favorite like two or three movies that you that have been Star Trek? Well, um, of course, Wrath of Khan uh, is universally recognized as perhaps the best movie. Um, I I think um, probably it it really is. I think also Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, stands out. Um, You know, that one, you know, particularly because of the message involved. You know, Star Trek, and some people kind of look at it as sort of preachy, but the whole notion of making peace with your arch enemies, that that, that was very Star Trek. First contact, actually, uh, I sort of like. Yeah. Uh, the board is always very exciting. Yeah. Um, all of them have something to recommend them, uh, I think. Even Star Trek The Motion Picture, which um, at the time was the most expensive film uh, made in the continental U.S. And for some, is a little boring, but it explores the nature of God. And um, I think it, it was the movie that had to be made before you could do Star Trek II. Um, Star Trek Three stands out for me because the Enterprise got destroyed. I remember sitting in the yeah. theater. I couldn't believe what I was watching. I was so excited that they got the dialogue right with regard to setting the self-destruct system. That, yeah. You know, straight out of the, uh, the the third season episode, let this be your last battlefield. And I'm so excited that they're getting it right. I'm like, wait a minute, what are they doing? Oh, my God, they're setting the auto-destruct. Ah! Next thing you know, the Enterprise is blowing up. Yeah, but, like DeForest Kelly had an interview after that movie uh, and said – you know, it was incredible to watch the Enterprise be destroyed, but it is unsettling because if they can blow up the Enterprise, which was the biggest star in the series, then all of us are expendable too. Like it was, <laughs> it was a big thing. And that, that was, that was, I was a little kid when that one came out and I watched it. And that was like my first one that I really watched all the way through and just seeing the Enterprise blow up. It, it just stuck with me too. It's one of my favorites as well. Well, uh, it's an interesting point that you've made in terms, and and I don't think this actually exists with any of the other series, any of the other ships. The Enterprise on Star Trek, the original series, is is sort of a character on the show, you know? I mean, it's not just a conveyance that gets them from place to place. I mean, in fact, I remember as early as uh, the first season episode, The Naked Time, you know, when they're all afflicted by this disease and, you know, their inner thoughts are coming out. And, uh, you know, you find out that Kirk is incredibly conflicted. I mean, because he feels like as if he's married to the ship yeah. and he can't have a relationship, you know, with a, with a real person because, you know, the ship comes first. And, you know, we saw that time and time again with the Kirk character. I mean, and it was such a poignant moment. I mean, he's having to pull himself together because they're in a moment of crisis. And he's as he's leaving the briefing room on his way to the bridge, he looks around and he's never lose you. Never, you know, I mean, and it was just, wow, I mean, this guy, so, and uh, like I said, that's a dynamic that didn't exist with any, I mean, as, as beloved as uh, the Galaxy Class Enterprise was, or Voyager, or, um, you know, the NX-01 Enterprise from, uh, you know, the Scott Bakula series, none of those other ones had the impact of the original 
Constitution class USS Enterprise in terms of the way the characters looked at it or the way that they felt about it. And certainly Kirk and Scott, you know, were the two who had the greatest love affair with the ship for obvious yeah, reasons. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I was going to name some of my favorites, but you hit all the ones that are my favorites too. Um, I love First Contact. First Contact was was fantastic. I remember going and seeing that in the theater with my dad. Um, Star Trek Two, going back as a kid, and the first one I saw was three, but going back and watching two, I was like, well, this is even mm. better. But then going back and watching the original series with Khan to understand who this guy was and why. Yeah, yeah and that, that was that's what I know that Abrams is doing his own thing and he's got his own universe. That was my biggest gripe with Into Darkness is that you took somebody as powerful as Khan and that had such a resonance to him that had such a meaning behind it and you made him the villain in the second one and it didn't really have that same feel. Like it didn't have the same stakes involved. Why should we care that he's Khan? He's just some British guy with an accent that has magic blood apparently. Like it's, it just, it bummed me out and like, Like you said, it's a whole new thing. It's a different thing now. Now that Abrams is in charge, it's a different universe. But I almost feel like it's not, it's not for me. The Star Trek, this isn't for people who grew up on this. This is for bringing in new people, new blood to try to make as as much money as you possibly can. But I have faith that the next one will be good because Simon (laughs) Pegg is helping write it. So... I, I think I think that might be false hope. I saw yeah. the uh, the the trailer. Oh God, the trailer's horrible. It's beast, set to this Beastie Boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, but and let me tell you, I love the Beastie Boys. Yeah, but not too. Star Trek. I mean, it looked like a frenetic thrill ride. But I tell you what, I mean, I think that's part of modern movie making because another franchise uh, that is very different in the movies from what it was as a TV series is Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, I mean, they've turned it into an action thing. And Mission Impossible was all about Greg Morris crawling around in a conduit, splicing wires and people pulling, you know, masks off their faces after having fooled people. So I, I think there is a certain sensibility uh, or and perhaps even a dumbing down of content in terms of what the producers and the studios feel that the viewers are going to accept. But um, what was something I'd like to ask you, and you sort of touched on it a moment ago. Because um, as a uh, as a slightly younger fan, and when you came in, mm-hmm. you know you mentioned uh, seeing uh, Wrath of Khan, and then going back and looking at the original series. I would think that, uh, particularly with you getting the introduction that you did with yeah. the movies, um, having the opportunity to go back and look at the original series that uh, on which the movies are based, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, sort of fi- finding out some of the things they had talked about and seeing these characters younger and, uh, you know, then knowing that there was this history and foundation uh, previously. What was that like? For me, I'm trying to think of a, of a, a good parallel to explain it. It's, as a, I mean, I was young. I was like eight, nine, ten, somewhere in that range when I really started watching uh, the movies and then going back and watching the series. It was almost like there was a certain appreciation for it because automatically these things that I love were created by this other thing. And there were some episodes that I really love. Um, As I got older, I watched them again and realized how cheesy they were. There was the one where, um, was it called E. Plugnista? Where Kirk ends up giving this big, like... Yeah, this big speech about America, and like it should have just had like a flag waving in the background. Like he's just oh, there like, was the people, and you're just like, yeah, Kirk, tell him. Like it's 
it, it was just it was cool, but I also got to see because at that time too, people were still kind of ragging on Star Trek. They were ragging on uh, Shatner for his acting. So I got it like right in that eighties to nineties era when he was the movies were still big, but people yeah. were still ragging on him anyways. So I got to see it and got to, got to understand the whole thing. Um, it's all, oh you know what perfect parallel. There are so many people now who don't watch a series on TV. Mm-hmm. Their friends convince them to watch it. We'll use The Walking Dead for example. And then they go back and they binge watch all of it on Netflix. And then they're like, I see what everybody was talking about now. It all makes sense. That was the same thing with me. They were like, oh, well, Kirk is – Shatner is really, really cheesy and his fight scenes are kind of lame. And then I watched that episode with the Gorn where his, like, go-to move is that overhand double-fisted axe handle that he uses. Like Kirk Fu. (laughs) Exactly. Kirk Fu. And he had to have his shirt ripped every time. Oh, yeah. And that was the cool part is that I got to – it all kind of came together. And like there's episodes of uh, – there's an episode of Futurama where they do a Star Trek spoof that is so dead on. Like um, – why can't I remember his name now? George Takei says, oh, a self-destruct sequence like 1A, 2B, C, and then Bender <laughs> blows up and he goes, thanks, Takei. Now everybody knows. I mean it's <laughs> – I got to get all of these jokes. I got to get all of it, it, like almost like right in time. It like worked out perfectly that I was able to get all of the old stuff and all of the new stuff together. Um, and I guess, I guess for now, today's generation, it's almost daunting because there's so much history. If somebody's like, oh, well, I want to get into Star Trek. Oh, well, you have to go back and you have to watch this and you have to watch that. Like it's, it can be daunting, but it, it's, it was still, I love Star Wars, but I think I like Star Trek more because of that, that feel, that hope, that, we as humans can come together and do something great. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like both of them in different ways. I mean, because I was, I mean, I was among that first generation that embraced uh, Star Wars. And it's fascinating to me now to see what's happened with it. Because had Lucas been able to acquire the rights to Flash Gordon, we're not having this conversation now. He That's makes true. a very, I'm sure, forgettable Flash Gordon movie and then goes on. You know, the fact that the rights weren't available and he had to do his own thing. And created this this thing, you know. But the science behind it, I think, is kind of questionable. I mean, if you look at it as a coming of age story, as a great adventure, um, and frankly, when I heard that Abrams was doing Star Wars, I, I was happy because he likes Star Wars. I mean, he is. The problem was he wasn't familiar with Star Trek. I mean, yeah, when Harv he Bennett, said that too, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Well, and when Harv Bennett came on as the producer uh, in Star Trek Two, the first thing he did was he went back and he looked at all seventy nine of the original uh, episodes. And that was when they decided, hey, wait a minute, this one with Ricardo Maltaban, this deserves another look. Maybe we can do something with that. Yeah. But, you know, all Abrams knew, I was familiar with, with the pop culture references. Yeah. You know, beam me up, Scotty, cotton the engines, cotton take no more, you yeah. know, this kind of thing. And, um, you know, so what that translated into was uh, these, at the end of Star Trek, the motion picture, they put up the graphic, the human adventure is just beginning. See, and, and that's what Star Trek is all about. I mean, what Abrams got was um, was not that. It was like, oh, this is, you know, sort of the humor adventure is just beginning. I remember in that movie they call Star Trek, first one. is a <laughs> That movie they call Star Trek. <laughs> well, it's, don't get me wrong. I mean, some yeah. of the performances were really great. You know, I, thought I thought Chris Pine as Kirk was dead on. He was pretty good. I mean, his Kirk was a different Kirk than Shatner's. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, Urban, Carl Urban, uh, yeah. doing McCoy, I thought was really good. Zachary Quinto, yeah. he did a really good Spock, even though his voice, he didn't have the same resonance that Nimoy had. Nobody would ever, yeah. is ever going to play that character. You'd have to smoke way. two packs a day for like 20 um, years to get that. Yeah, so, you yeah. know? Hey, hey. But there was a scene where um, 
McCoy shot Kirk with something and his hands inflated up yeah. like Mickey Mouse uh, gloves and whatever. And then that was what this guy got from the series. He didn't yeah. get that these people were friends or that um, there are sometimes causes that transcend um, uh, reason, you know, where there's something worth dying for, worth fighting for, yeah. um, you know, where sometimes uh, the rules that we put in place, um, you know, sometimes mean that sacrifice is required uh, and that we have to try and be better than, than who we are. You know, I mean, there, there in fact, there's an episode, uh, the Galileo 7 where Spock and a shuttlecraft uh, crew are stranded on a, uh, a planet and they're these hostile aliens. I mean, but they're primitives. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that Spock mentions, and it's just incredible, uh, you know, was, you know, hey, we have a responsibility to other life forms, friendly or not. And so that's like, wow, even though we're threatened, you know, it might be that in order to protect these life forms, we have to destroy ourselves. That was one thing I thought that Next Generation really got. Uh, there was an episode, um, I can't remember the title of it. I don't know the Next Generation ones as well. It was the second one with the crystalline entity. And uh, they yeah. had realized from their first encounter with that, that their shields would protect. So um, now, of course, this thing has wiped out the whole populations of planets. And, uh, you know, but they've realized their shields can protect them. And so, uh, you know, Picard is talking to this uh, scientist whose son was killed by the creature. But he says, and, and I was blown away, but he says, as long as we know our shields will protect us, I want to try to communicate with it. And I was like, you are one bad dude. <laughs> you are one bad dude. This yeah. thing could destroy your whole ship kill your crew, but if you're not in danger, you want to try and communicate. I mean, that's like, that is so high-minded and advanced and civilized. I was just, I was too done. And I think that that's what we need to strive for. And when you talked about the hopefulness of Star Trek, I mean, you know, because so often people are very Old Testament today. Oh, yeah. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and, and you know, I'm going to get mine and to heck with you and all that. But, um, you know, sometimes you have to put <laughs> the needs of the many <laughs> ahead of the needs of the few or the one, as the expression goes. Yeah. And that was one of the things that Star Trek uh, preached as part of the overall philosophy. And I think that's something that's worth embracing and internalizing. I do too, yeah, absolutely. Um, We've only got like a minute or two uh, left here, but um, just kind of going forward with this, in this 50th anniversary, there, there's, they're re-releasing, I mean, just tons of product. They're putting out all sorts of great stuff. Um, what do you hope to see this year from Paramount, from Star Trek, from, from anybody that's involved with this uh, as, as a good tribute to such an influential series? Well... That's a loaded question. Okay. Um, I, 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 cause I, I tend to be sort of pessimistic okay. generally. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I mean, what this is, I think the fans are going to celebrate, uh, Star Trek. And it's just like we were talking about in terms of looking at the history and the philosophy and uh, what we take away from it, honoring the, uh, you know, the great bird of the galaxy creator, Gene Roddenberry, yeah. some of the wonderful performers who brought these characters to life and ingratiated them with us. Uh, but 
I mean, hey, you know, and the rights are split between Paramount and CBS uh, right now. But uh, what it is, this is, it's a money grab. It's an, you know, it's commerce. And so they're going to make as much money as they can. I mean, I recently, I recently went to, um, there's a show where they're uh, performing, uh, there's a symphony orchestra, they're performing music from the various series. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they were all, the, it was, it was, hey, it was very entertaining and I enjoyed it. And most of it sounded pretty good, although I thought they did a better job with the newer pieces. But um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, um, I would love to see more reverence for what it is yeah. and, uh, you know, appreciation for Gene Roddenberry uh, because he was the overriding guiding force behind this thing. And it's just too bad that, uh, because at one point, Paramount was willing to sell him the rights. He just couldn't raise the money to be able to get them. And so the studio retained him. And, uh, you know, I mean, as uh, suits go, I mean, hey, you know, the corporate people are going to, I mean, as is their mandate, they're going to exploit whatever there is and uh, extract as much of the almighty dollar as they can. And I don't, I mean, I don't say that as a condemnation. I mean, it's merely an observation yeah. about the way things are. So I, I but I, I guess, um, not straight too off topic. If, if what I would hope is that there is uh, a, a gratefulness to Gene Roddenberry for having given us this thing in the first place, and perhaps and it's a little lofty, but perhaps, um, trying to embrace more of the philosophy of Star Trek and um, being a little less harsh towards one another. I mean, especially in the United States, we are so polarized yeah. politically and uh, economically, you know, the haves and the have-nots and, you know, the hawks and the doves and the right and the left and all this stuff, um, you know, when really there is so much more that we share in common than those relatively few things that tend to divide us. And if we concentrate more on what we all share in common, um, you know, we're a lot better off. And that's really what Star Trek is all about, because we have survived our infancy. We put aside all this nonsensical stuff that mires us, and we've dared to reach for the stars and to go out and explore. And we're not spreading garbage out there. You know, I mean, the Earth is one of the leading civilizations in the United Federation of Planets. Uh, you know, a shining beacon as mankind goes out and uh, seeks out new life and new civilizations, boldly going where no one has gone before. <laughs> I think I think that it, I haven't heard it said better. I, I, I completely agree. That's That was a fantastic uh, sentiment there. Again, guys, this is Ulysses Campbell. Uh, if you want to check him out, he's got a great show. Uh, it's called Fantastic Forum. Where can they find this show? Uh, they can find the show via the Fantastic Forum website at fantasticforum.tv uh, or on YouTube. In fact, we're getting ready to add a radio component. Oh, really? uh, there's going to be a radio show. Yeah, I've, I've just uh, found out that we've been approved for that. On uh, in, You'll be able to get it in Arlington, Virginia, in that area. It's WERA-FM 96.7. And in fact, Mike... I would love to have you as a guest on the show. You're very knowledgeable, and I see you're a Caps fan. <laughs> I, I am, yeah. I am a Caps fan indeed. Um, my hair's a little messy. I haven't really cleaned myself up this morning. I was busy making breakfast for the family. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would love to come on. I mean, it's it, it was so cool to meet somebody else who has the same passion for the things that I do, but also somebody that lives in the D.C. area too. And uh, I won't hold it against you that you're a Yankees fan. 
I, I don't I'm understand from, it, but I respect it. So. I'm from northern New Jersey, man. You know, a day. <laughs> it's, it's fair enough. It's fair enough. I understand completely. But again, Ulysses, thank you so much for coming on the show today. All right, guys. So that was Ulysses Campbell from Fantastic Forum. Remember, check out his website and all the great things that they talk about. That is www.fantasticforum.com. But our 50th anniversary for Star Trek podcasts are not over yet. Don't fret at all. We've got a lot more coming up. We've got the regular Comics Online podcast crew that's going to be talking about what Star Trek means to them as well. That'll be coming out real soon. So keep your ears open for that one. But remember, my name is Mike Lunsford. And for everything geek pop culture, this is Comics Online.